0: Norman Vincent Peale encouraged us to shoot for the moon, as even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. It's great motivational advice, and I have continuously repeated it for the benefit of my own students. But the sentiment isn't universally applicable. Peale endeavors to inspire us to go for it, knowing that the sheer act of trying likely means that some element of success will inevitably follow. Midway through 1810, Napoleon was more or less able to declare victory. He had gone head-to-head and defeated the great armies of Europe and the Middle East. He had established a relatively successful economic blockade of his archrival England. He had married into one of the historic families of Europe and was overjoyed to hold his son and heir in his arms. Napoleon had shot for the moon but some people can never be truly content with what they have. In the early 1900s, Austrian psychoanalyst Alfred Adler coined the term Napoleonic Complex. Adler believed that individuals who experienced physical or emotional shortcomings, such as being short, produced feelings of inferiority leading to individuals overcompensating to make up for the supposed slight. Napoleon's ambition had already taken him from a down-and-out small noble family on the island of Corsica to the emperor of France and Italy, a man who could literally summon the pope to preside over his marriage. But it was also his oversized ambition that would lead to his downfall. His is a story that reminds me of Paradise Lost, an epic poem written by John Milton in the 17th century. It tells the story of Adam and Eve's fall from grace from within the Garden of Eden, but with a heavy focus on the character of Satan. In the poem, Milton depicts Satan as a once glorious angel who rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven for his failure at seizing the crown. In his failure, he becomes consumed by his desire for power and revenge and spends much of the story attempting to thwart God's plans and corrupt humanity. Despite his immense power and intelligence, Satan is ultimately unable to achieve his goals as his relentless pursuit of power results in him making numerous bad decisions, while his arrogance and pride blind him to the consequences of his actions. In many ways, Satan's story can be seen as a cautionary tale about the dangers of ambition and greed. Satan's unquenchable thirst for power leads him to make choices that ultimately result in his downfall. Napoleon may not have been sent to hell, but life in exile can seem pretty close to it. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the continuation of our series detailing the life and legacy of Napoleon Bonaparte. Episode number seven, Why You Never Invade Russia in the Winter. unsuccessful in his attempts to cross the channel, Napoleon decided to play the long game regarding England, establishing an embargo on the import of British goods in any land from which he ruled. Even though Britain couldn't summon the men-at-arms to defeat General Bonaparte, they were more than willing to subsidize other nations' efforts at revolting against the French. They had previously paid both Russia and Austria to attack the Corsican and in 1810 had begun to fund a successful insurgency within Spain. Historian Frank McLynn, our main source for this series, tells us that Napoleon thought that a determined assault on England's export trade would lead to economic collapse. This would have two effects. Britain would be unable to subsidize its continental allies and revolution at home would force her to the peace table. But sanctions are notoriously ineffective oftentimes taking decades before showing any progress. They also tend to hurt the wrong people, as the inevitable increase in price of goods and services are most acutely felt by the poor. The empowered decision-makers, on the other hand, tend to be completely immune to the consequences. The British initially laughed off the blockade, merely shifting their trade to their impressive slate of colonies throughout the world. But things turned serious in 1807, when American President Thomas Jefferson joined the French embargo after becoming fed up with the English practice of impressment, during which the Royal Navy would seize men from American merchant ships in order to force them to serve on their own ships. Jefferson, who already had positive relations with the French Emperor as a result of his wildly successful 1803 purchase of the Louisiana Territory, dutifully signed the Embargo Act of 1807. Designed to keep America neutral, the act deprived England of her greatest remaining source of trade. The legislation only increased tensions between the two nations, eventually resulting in the destruction of the White House during the War of 1812. An embargo can also result in shooting yourself in the foot It has been illegal for Americans to trade with Cuba for nearly the entirety of my life. Rather than bringing the Cuban regime to their knees, however, it merely means that the U.S. doesn't have access to Cuban sugar or medical advances, some of which are quite spectacular. After England launched tit-for-tat measures, coastal trade throughout France dried up. For instance, 121 American ships entered the French port city of Bordeaux in 1807, but that number was down to just six one year later. It turns out that the French relied quite a bit upon the British for a number of their goods. Thus, Napoleon enacted the Continental System, a plan to replace British goods with those made throughout the lands of his far-ranging kingdom. The consequences were significant price increases, shortages of goods, and an upsurge in corruption. Each resulted in anger directed towards the Emperor, particularly the stories of corruption. This was exemplified in 1807 when the French minister was ordered to secure 50,000 winter coats for the French Grand Army. He secretly purchased the raw materials illegally from England pointing out to his critics that the soldiers would have died if he hadn't crossed the picket line. MacLynn tells us that the hypocrisy continued. In fact, the inflow of British manufacturers continued at such a rate that in the 1812 campaign, soldiers in the Grand Army wore boots made in Northampton and greatcoats made from Lanchester and Yorkshire cloth. England received a respite from the blockade when the insurgency began in Spain. The newly crowned Spanish government led by Joseph Bonaparte was unable to sustain communication with its Latin American colonies, opening the door for England to begin to serve as their chief supplier. Realizing that his policy was a failure, Napoleon pulled a U-turn, making it legal for France to import British goods. From there, the Frenchmen would be allowed to pass them on to the rest of Napoleon's empire at exorbitant prices. Mass resentment consumed the Corsicans' allied nations. McLinn explains that the decrees had a threefold aim to tighten the noose on the illicit trade in British goods and make London realize it could never win the economic war to strengthen the privileged position of French manufacturing by raising the Imperial and Italian customs tariff and thus to boost French industry by giving it a monopoly in industrial production and the distribution of colonial goods, and to destroy the point of smuggling by issuing licenses for the export and import of necessary raw materials. Faced with a trade that he could not stop, Napoleon in effect turned smuggler himself. As you might imagine, the effect of all of this was a sustained economic crisis that lasted from 1811 to 1813. Bread riots emerged along with a full-on rebellion in Normandy. It was worse in England, which had to deal with what became known as the Luddite movement. Historian Marcus Redeker portrays the Luddites, who destroyed all machinery that they encountered as workers fighting for their survival in the face of ruthless industrialization and economic transformation. But with everything that was going on, it was the emperor's hopeless war with Russia in 1812 that would write the ending for Napoleon Bonaparte. the Emperor had twice fought and defeated Russian Tsar Alexander I, a known schizophrenic. The two had become somewhat friends after meeting at Tassilt in 1807. But by 1811, Napoleon was furious that his counterpart was refusing to enact the continental blockade of England, as London remained the only buyer of Russian corn, hemp, wood, potassium, leather, and iron. Rather than letting the trade drag on, Napoleon incorrectly concluded that war with Russia was the only solution for beating England. As the sabres rattled, both leaders were incredibly confident, with McLinn revealing to us that Alexander felt that in a war the Russians would lose in the short term, but win in the long if only because Bonaparte could not afford to be absent from France for the two years it would take to subdue the warriors of the steppes. Although Napoleon publicly talked about weakening Russia in order to promote a strong, independent Polish nation, he was privately focused on his long-standing Oriental complex, revealing to an advisor that the end of the road is India. Alexander the Great was as far as from Moscow when he marched to the Ganges. I have said this to myself ever since saint jean d'Acre. Just imagine, Moscow taken, Russia defeated, the Tsar made over or assassinated in a palace plot. And then tell me that it is impossible for a large army of Frenchmen and their allies to leave Tilthus and reach the Ganges. Essentially, all that is needed is a swift stroke of a French sword for the entire British mercantile apparatus in the East to collapse. Quotes like this were so grand in scale that it caused Austrian psychiatrist Sigmund Freud to look back at Napoleon's delusions of grandeur during 1812. After exhaustive analysis Freud concluded that the Emperor must have unconsciously been looking to punish himself for discarding his wife, Josephine. War planning began on January 13, 1812, with the securing of enough provisions to feed a 400,000-man army over the course of 50 days. Rather than focusing on mobility, which had been his calling card as a general, Napoleon sought to overwhelm the Tsar. This was largely due to the miscalculation that Russia would give up once it saw what Napoleon had lined up against them. In reality, however, the Russians were more than adequately prepared to engage the French on the battlefields of their choosing. The Emperor even made peace with Turkey so that he could concentrate all of his forces against the oncoming French. By the time Napoleon reached Danzig, Poland, his army had swelled to an absurd 675,000 men. Napoleon's plan was simple: engage the two Russian forces led by Prince Bagration and the commander-in-chief Barclay de Tolly. He would then envelop the forces in order to sue for peace. He told Confidence that the entire thing would be wrapped up in 12 days' time. MacLynn tells us that it was a good plan, but it depended on exact timing, close communication, and secure lines. Most of all, it envisioned Blitzkrieg warfare, but Napoleon's previous victories had all been won with smallish armies operating over smallish spaces. He had never tried to coordinate vast armies over distances of hundreds of miles. In other words, it was fatally flawed from the beginning. Although they had the 50 days worth of rations for 400,000 men, no one had yet figured out how to transport them to the front. Napoleon, now aged 40, traveled in a six-horse coach complete with a makeshift couch and desk, so he could continue running the empire from the front. His inability to delegate was one of his many Achilles heels. During one battle in 1813, he was interrupted from directing the troops in order to approve the expenses of the Commissioner of Saint-Malo, who was back in France. The bureaucracy traveled behind their emperor in 52 separate coaches. The French forces crossed the Niemann River on June 23rd, a full month later than he had planned for. Worse, he was thrown from his horse after a rabbit had spooked it. It was an omen that the Corsican should have paid attention to. His men, particularly the non-French conscripts, weren't prepared for the mission's parameters, with each man consuming four days worth of rations in one afternoon. The heat and exhaustion claimed between five to 6,000 lives per day. Barclay, the Russian commander, had elected to utilize a scorched earth policy, depriving the French of anything useful along their path. The drastic differences in temperature from day to night claimed the lives of 8,000 horses every day, worrying Napoleon's chief of staff that the emperor would lose his entire force of cavalry. Barclay decided to finally give fight to Napoleon on July 27th, drawing up his forces. Napoleon uncharacteristically hesitated, deciding to wait to begin the fight the next morning. Upon waking at dawn, however, he discovered that the Russians had had second thoughts, turning and running in the middle of the night. As they passed through the city of Vilna, the French determined that more than 100,000 of their soldiers were missing. The discovery came before a single pitched battle had occurred and had thrown the emperor's strategy for a loop preventing a decisive victory. The French forces remained 20 days away from Moscow and set out to capture the key city on August 11th. Three days later came the battle for Smolensk. Down to 175,000 effectives at this point, Napoleon's army wasn't much larger than his foes' combined 125,000. Worse for the little corporal was the fact that his forces were hopelessly strung out along a 500-mile-wide front. Historian David Chandler tells us that the Battle of Smolensk was the first real combat of the Russian campaign of 1812. The fight was indecisive, but costly. The Russians suffered losses of about 10,000 killed, wounded, or captured, and the French about 8,000. The principal reason for such losses was that the 40-year-old Napoleon was clearly past his prime ordering unimaginative, slow frontal assaults, the kind of which he had always avoided in the past. The Russian prince wanted to defend the city for a third day, but Barclay knew that they risked being surrounded. He pulled rank on the prince, deciding to live to fight another day. Failing to capture the enemy, Napoleon was furious and he took his wrath out on his loyal Marshal Junot for letting the Russians escape. War theorist Carl von Clausewitz tells us that the lashing contributed to Junot's intoxication and ill health, ultimately resulting in the highly regarded military man to throw himself out of a window to his death 11 months later. McLinn, however, would be hesitant to describe anything gained as a prize. As the main French army began entering Smolensk at dawn on the 18th to find it a smoking ruin and a carnal house of corpses. Even hardened veterans vomited at the gruesome piles of dead and dying they saw. Napoleon's response was to repeat an old Roman saying, that the corpses of an enemy always smells good. He remained in the devastated city for two weeks, fully expecting the Tsar to see reason and offer peace terms. But no one came seeking parley. Looking back on his life, Napoleon would claim that deciding not to winter in Smolensk was the greatest blunder of his life. At the time, he was determined to reach Moscow, telling as much to another of his highly regarded marshals, Murat, who was so distraught at the idea of continuing the campaign that he willingly exposed himself to shell fire later that night, hoping perhaps to end his misery before the army departed again. Moscow was 270 miles away and McLinn shares the general's thinking that if the Tsar would not fight for Smolensk, he would surely fight for Moscow. But the urgency was more than that. The emperor had left behind a nation in the midst of an economic crisis. Now, more than 1,500 miles away, he was determined to force a peace agreement upon the Tsar so that he could return to his seat of power. They departed from the smoldering city on August 25th. Almost immediately, horses began to die by the thousands, as the Russian policy of scorched earth left them nothing to graze upon. One division reports that it had lost 86% of its entire company of horse, despite having fought just one battle during the campaign. They couldn't have known it, but five days earlier, the Tsar had decided to abruptly change tactics firing Barclay and appointing Michael Kutsov to the head of the Red Army. Historian Richard Rhine describes the 67-year-old career soldier as a master of improvisation with an almost intuitive sense for the moment when to withdraw or to attack. He was a superb defensive commander who knew how to turn a retreat into a victory. Historian Adam Zamonsky concurred, writing that Kutsov was a great commander who understood the strengths and weaknesses of his troops and was able to use them to his advantage. Although he agreed with the scorched earth strategy of his predecessor, he was compelled to bring the fight to Napoleon by Tsar Alexander. The compassionate Russian commander chose farmland outside of Bordino to make his stand, with 120,000 troops and 640 pieces of artillery. Napoleon had nearly 10,000 more troops than the enemy arrayed against him, less than a third of what he had begun the campaign with. Worse, most of his men were sick, exhausted, and half-starved. Napoleon lazily ordered a frontal assault from his carriage, not even deeming the battle worthy to attend to in person. One of his marshals was so furious at the lack of attention that he reportedly lashed out, proclaiming that, if he is no longer a general, then he should go back to the palace and let us be generals for him. From seven in the morning till three in the afternoon, the French charged into a hail of gunfire that left the battle filled with so much smoke that neither side could make out the other. In the end, the French took the ridge, merely forcing the Russians to retreat to the next one to take up defensive positions. McLinn summarizes the clash by writing that Some authorities claim that Borodino was the worst single day's fighting in all of history. The Grand Army alone fired 90,000 artillery rounds and 2 million infantry cartridges. The Russians lost 44,000 dead and wounded, and the French 35,000. That is the modern-day equivalent of a fully-loaded Boeing 747 crashing every five minutes for eight continuous hours. Although it was technically a victory, the French were demoralized, with one advisor proclaiming that, These Russians let themselves be killed as if they were not human beings at all, but machines. They are not taken prisoner. This is not helping us. They are citadels which only cannonballs can demolish. That night, the Russian force once again retreated allowing the exhausted and bewildered French to reach Moscow after a grueling seven straight days of marching. They arrived not to a magnificent city whose population was believed to have been around a quarter of a million, but rather a ghost town that had been utterly abandoned in the wake of their arrival. Historian Dominic Levin describes the scene as such. The French entered a city in which 75% of the buildings had been destroyed by fire. Corpses of men and animals littered the streets. So great was the stench that the invaders were forced to stuff cotton in their nostrils. As the exhausted soldiers marched through the ruined city, They were met with an eerie silence. The few remaining citizens had either fled or died in the fires. The once grand city was now reduced to rubble and ash. Historian Adam Zembowski describes the devastation in his book 1812, Napoleon's Fatal March on Moscow, by writing, Moscow was a city of the dead with corpses lying everywhere and nothing left alive or untouched by the flames. They scurried to put out the arsonists' fires, but were dismayed when they realized that the locals had removed all of the city's fire engines and destroyed all other firefighting equipment. The future capital city of Russia had been reduced to a smoldering ruin, and the invaders were left with no choice but to fend for themselves in a hostile, barren wasteland. Winter was approaching, and the French army was ill-equipped for the harsh conditions they were about to face. Napoleon still remained undeterred, however, and took up residence in the Kremlin, waiting to receive the inevitable summons to treat with Tsar Alexander. It never came. Napoleon wrote to the Tsar, but Alexander refused to even open the letter. The French were trapped in the ruins of a once great city, and the Russian forces were growing larger and more confident by the day. The Corsican dithered in Moscow for 35 days before ordering a retreat back into Poland on October 17th. But by this time, peasants had taken up arms, outraged at the treatment that they had been subjected to. They weren't so much anti-French, as they were angry at the world. Russia's policy of destroying everything that could be used directly affected the Russian citizenry. Rather than fighting on behalf of their own people, The Russians had decided to inflict pain upon them in their efforts to defeat the French. The guerrilla groups that formed were among the most brutal bands in history. One splinter group preferred to lure in groups of Frenchmen by offering them food and drink before slitting their throats as they slept. The groups were so effective that Napoleon was forced to issue orders that no group smaller than 1,500 ever departed the camp. It was one of the few effective orders issued by the emperor as he had surrounded himself with incompetent yes-men who were unwilling to suffer the legendary wrath of the little corporal. MacLynn reveals to us that when informed that his men lacked winter gear, Napoleon issued orders to manufacture them, despite the fact that they had no machinery nor raw materials to do so. He had lost his grip on reality. The French retreat during the winter of 1812 is one of the most harrowing journeys ever recorded. Although Alexander desired that General Winter, as the Russians referred to it, had the privilege of finishing the French off, the Tsar pushed Kutsov to pressure the enemy. The first engagement nearly killed Murat, Napoleon's most talented commander. It didn't help that the Emperor had allowed the survivors of Moscow to carry immense hordes of stolen treasure with them in order to prove to those who didn't believe that the Russian campaign had been a victory for the Frenchmen. They had to retrace their steps over land that had been ruined by the Russians land so bare that a crow flying over it would have had to have brought its own provisions. Their path included once again crossing over the battlefield of Borodino. McLynn writes that psychologically this had a disastrous effect on morale. Although the men tried to shield their eyes, they could not avoid the sight of the 30,000 corpses on which wolves had fed, the immense tomb-like open grave into which bodies had been shoveled the wheeling of carrion crows in the sky, or the stench of myriad rotting corpses. They walked directly into the path of the vicious peasants who would nip at the army's edges, capturing soldiers that lagged behind in order to boil them alive or impale them on stakes. They were so sadistic that they would purchase French prisoners from the Russians in order to pull their eyes out take turns hammering nails into their hunger-stricken bodies, or to drive stakes down their throats. McLynn points out that it almost became a game to met out the most psychologically damaging death, telling of a particularly favored method that involved wrapping a naked victim in a wet sack with a pillow tied around the torso. Villagers would then vie with one another to beat the stomach with hammers, logs, and stones so that the internal organs were crushed but no marks were left. It therefore is no surprise the most Frenchmen attempted suicide rather than be caught by the peasants or the Russians. Russian writer Leo Tolstoy described the peasants' rage and cruelty in his book War and Peace, writing that Every soldier felt that the peasants were his enemy, and that they had vowed to destroy him. They tore off his boots, his coat, his cap, and his gloves, leaving him exposed to the bitter cold. They would chase the soldiers and then strike them from behind, and if they fell, they would be stabbed with a pitchfork or hacked with an axe. And Dominic Levin described a similar scene in his book Russia Against Napoleon, detailing that the wounded and the prisoners were dragged off to a barn and systematically bayoneted or shot. The screams of the dying and the howls of the triumphant murderers echoed across the snowfields. As temperatures reached negative 25 degrees Fahrenheit, French soldiers disobeyed orders and exchanged their uniforms for anything warm that they could steal. McLinn tells us that Napoleon's once proud host was on the verge of extinction even before it reached Smolensky. They abandoned their loot and then their weapons, eventually becoming a rabble of refugees. They marched for 14 hours a day, desperate to put some distance between themselves that the pursuing Russians commanded by Kutsov. On November 17th, the Russians launched a major assault, and Napoleon put his Imperial Old Guard, a group that he referred to as his Immortals in reference to the Persian Emperor Xerxes' elite guard. No historian understands why Napoleon was so reluctant to use this elite group of warriors, but they saved his skin on this day sending a signal to the Russians that there remained some fight left in The Walking Dead. Kutsov was content to wait for the chance to land a final blow. It also helped that he knew that the bridges needed to cross the upcoming river had already been destroyed. Thus, the French were surrounded with little to no hope as they had been ordered to abandon all siege equipment in their desperate attempt to escape their fate. Convinced that it truly was the end, Napoleon ordered that all state papers should be burnt, along with the remaining French tricolor flags. Thankfully, General Elbe had disobeyed the earlier orders to abandon the heavy equipment, saving two field forges, two wagons of charcoal, six sapper tools, and bridging equipment. Upon hearing that a semblance of hope remained, the little corporal seemed to wake up and ordered a number of dramatic feints designed to confuse the enemy, keeping it at bay while Eble's men dismantled enough houses to utilize the wood to reconstruct two 300-foot bridges to cross the river. These men, like most bridge builders and engineers in modern armies, are true heroes suffering 24-hour shifts standing in freezing water in order to put in the trestles and planking required to save the lives of their comrades. Although he urged the camp followers to immediately cross after the army, they refused in fear of the wobbling bridges. It was only when Eble set the detonations that the half-dead rabble surged across, resulting in the tragic death of perhaps 10,000 in the explosions that followed. Worse, more than 30,000 were left on the other side of the river. There was no quarter given, and they were quickly and ruthlessly dispatched by the Russians. Two weeks after crossing the river, they reached the border of Poland. Napoleon abandoned what remained of his army and hastened back to Paris fearful upon finding out that at least one coup had been attempted during his long absence. His abandonment of the army didn't stop the pursuit of the Russians as they surged past their borders set on an invasion course that was due to end in Paris itself. Historian Jeremy Black reveals that the Russian campaign of 1812 was a turning point in Napoleon's fortunes. He went from being the conqueror of Europe to a man on the defensive, struggling to maintain his grip on power. And historian Dominic Levin tells us that while Russia may not have been the end for Napoleon, it certainly was the beginning of the end as the invasion of Russia in 1812 was a disastrous mistake that he never fully recovered from. It marked the beginning of the end of his empire and set the stage for his eventual downfall. Napoleon arrived in Paris around midnight on December 18th. Disturbingly, the Emperor pretended as though the Russian campaign had never happened. As though departing with more than half a million individuals and returning all by yourself in a frantic rush didn't require any additional commentary. As part of his psychopathic behavior, he ordered a number of parties in order to support his lies that the campaign had been a great victory. MacLynn tells us the following about the absurd loss of life that Napoleon attempted to cover up, writing that 370,000 French troops perished on the battlefield of cold and exposure or disease. 200,000 more were taken prisoner or deserted and in the light of what has been said about partisan atrocities there need be no serious debate about their probable fate. The frightful loss of life can be gauged from one single statistic. The Imperial Guard, 47,000 strong, had not been involved in the heaviest fighting, but returned with just 1,500 men alive. Numbers such as that are impossible to cover up, and the truth began to emerge as word reached Paris in early January that the forces of Tsar Alexander were in the process of invading Prussia. Even if Napoleon had been able to convince himself of the lies he told regarding Russia, he couldn't sugarcoat the news that things had gone just as badly for the French neighboring Spain. His brother Joseph, the crowned king, had been chased out of Madrid by a combination of angry Spaniards and the British forces under the command of Lord Wellington. Napoleon, always hoping to use the military as the answer to every single question, spent the first few months of 1813 preparing his forces for yet another campaign. Once again, the little corporal was back at his absolute best for the onset of this war. But although he was victorious in a string of battles, he was unable to earn a decisive victory by enveloping the enemy forces. The reason for this was his complete inability to recover from the army's loss of more than 200,000 horses in Russia. As the Great Red Bear emerged from the east, the fertile lands of Prussia that would have provided new steeds for his cavalry were no longer a part of his empire. In May he lost Duroc, his last loyal competent commander, and on June 4th he agreed to a ceasefire. Guaranteed by the neutral party of Austria. Of course, you and I both know that Austria wasn't really a neutral party. Napoleon's mistake was in thinking that she was in his pocket. After all, he was married to a member of their royal family. Austria remained a part of his empire, and he had three times taught them a lesson about going against him. Thus, his overconfidence allowed him to be fooled. American Nobel laureate Richard Feynman reminds us that the first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. McLinn writes, although Napoleon has been severely criticized for falling into his enemy's trap by accepting the armistice, there were rational grounds for his decision. His army was already exhausted and had sustained 25,000 more casualties than the enemy in the campaign as a whole. There were 90,000 men on the sick list and desertion had reached epidemic proportions. Additionally, ammunition and supplies were scarce because of raids on lines of communications by Cossacks and German partisans. But crucially, he lacked a good intelligence network so did not realize the Allies were in a desperate position. Austria put forth Prince Clemens von Metternich, an Austrian diplomat and statesman. Metternich had begun serving as Austria's foreign minister in 1809. He had also been the one who had sealed Napoleon's marriage agreement. Behind the scenes, however, Metternich's opposition to Napoleon stemmed from his belief that the French Emperor was a threat to the existing political order in Europe. He saw the Corsicans' conquests as a challenge to the traditional system of dynastic rule and sought to contain his ambitions through a series of alliances and coalitions with other European powers. Above all, Metternich believed that Europe was better off with an equal balance of power among Europe's leading powers, fearful that when France sneezes, Europe catches a cold. The peace negotiations opened on August 10th and although his original plan was to merely stall until England and Russia could recover their footing, Metternich soon revealed his distaste for the emperor, who had tasked him with delivering peace. The first terms proposed were a rolling back of the map to the lines of 1796, effectively erasing all of Napoleon's continental conquests. The French ruler raged at this double cross, Having achieved the final two victories of the war, he had expected to receive concessions rather than insults. Napoleon raged, shouting, I may lose my throne, but I shall bury the whole world in its ruins, before labeling Metternich as Judas. On the next day, Austria joined England and Russia in the immediate resumption of the war. Despite the number of their forces, which swelled considerably with the introduction of Austria, The Allies hesitated, showing that they had properly learned the lessons from both Spain and Russia. Working together, they jointly settled on a war of attrition, agreeing to retreat and scorch the earth any time they found themselves face-to-face with a Bonaparte-led army. Although it had seemed like an impossible task, Napoleon had raised up 680,000 more troops to face the Allies' combined forces of 800,000 but the French were lacking both experience and cavalry mounts. Despite missing these key ingredients, the Frenchmen led by the Emperor advanced on Berlin, but everywhere else the Allies dominated against his lesser commanders. The game came to an end for Bonaparte in October of 1813 in Leipzig. The Battle of Leipzig, also known as the Battle of Nations, was a decisive battle fought in October 1813 between the coalition armies of Russia, Prussia, Austria, and Sweden against Napoleon's French army. It was the largest battle of the Napoleonic Wars, with over half a million troops involved. It also resulted in a crushing defeat for Napoleon, The battle took place over four days from october 16th to 19th in saxony germany the coalition forces vastly outnumbered napoleon's army which remained exhausted and demoralized from the disastrous russian campaign of 1812. historians have described the battle as a turning point in the napoleonic wars with many attributing napoleon's defeat to his overconfidence and tactical errors according to historian andrew roberts The Emperor's refusal to consider an orderly retreat or to use a more defensive strategy was rooted in his supreme confidence in his own genius. Despite his best efforts, the little corporal was unable to break through the Coalition lines and was eventually obligated to retreat. The battle resulted in over 100,000 casualties, making it one of the bloodiest in history up to that point. The defeat at Leipzig marked the beginning of the end for Napoleon's empire. It opened the door for the coalition forces to invade France and ultimately led to Napoleon's exile to the island of Elba in April 1814. Zamoyski describes the battle as the turning point in the fortunes of the Napoleonic Empire. In the words of General Blucher, one of the coalition commanders, The Battle of Leipzig has buried all the glory of Napoleon. He has been defeated, and we are now free. The Allies took their time liberating France, however. McGlynn tells us that they took until Christmas to reach the east bank of the Rhine. By the end of 1813, Napoleon's very survival was at stake. Soon a peace treaty would be signed that resulted in Emperor Napoleon's expulsion from the continent of Europe, forced to preside only over the miserable island of Elba. That story will be one of the main settings for our final episode on the life and legacy of Napoleon Bonaparte. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.